Welcome to From What If to What Next, your fortnightly exhilarating immersion in the world of the imagination. Mariana Matsukato wrote in Mission Economy that a time of crisis is exactly the moment to reimagine what type of society we want to build and the capabilities and capacities we need to get there. Absolutely. So, in this time of multiple crises, this podcast is your space where we not only explore what type of society we want to build, but we bring it to life, stepping into that future for a test drive. It's customary at this point for me to point out that it would be totally fabulous if you enjoy what you hear today, for you to become a patron of this podcast. It's what enables us to keep making them and for them to sound as glorious as they do. It's not much, but it's a lot to us. Do pop to patreon.com slash from what if to what next and sign up. You would be welcomed with open arms. Today we're talking about bugs. The world of bugs is one of extraordinary and dazzling diversity. Bugs keep us alive through their role in pollinating the plants we depend on for food, but do so much more besides. Building soil, keeping our ecosystems thriving, keeping rivers clean, and so, so, so much more. While also, on occasion, taking our breath away through their sheer beauty. Last year I had a hummingbird hawk moth in my garden and it felt like we had been visited by the divine. But bugs are in trouble. While insects outweigh human beings on this planet by over 70 times, we're seeing a 2.5% a year loss in their populations over the last 25 years. Between 2000 and 2009, species of butterflies declined by 58% on farmland and 41% of insect species have declined over the past 10 years and one third are considered to be endangered. The microbiologist René Dubot once said something like, if we lived on the moon, our imaginations would be as barren as the moon. A world of vibrant, diverse insect populations is vital to our imaginations and their impoverishment impoverishes our imaginations too. So today, our question is, what if the bugs bounced back? I'm so delighted to be joined by two fantastic guests for today's show. Vicky Hurd is Head of Sustainable Farming Campaign for Sustain, the Alliance for Better Food and Farming, and she also runs an independent consultancy. An experienced and award-winning environmental campaigner, researcher, writer and strategist working mainly in the food, farming and environmental policy arena, Vicky has worked on government policy for many years and is also the author of Perfectly Safe to Eat, The Facts on Food. Vicky's passion is insects and other invertebrates. The first pets she gave to her children were a family of stick insects and she has a giraffe-necked weevil tattoo for her 50th birthday. Vicky has a master's in pest management and she's a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society and her forthcoming book, Rebugging the Planet, is a joy. And Matt Shardlow is chief executive of Bug Life, the Invertebrate Conservation Trust, the only organisation in Europe committed to saving all invertebrates. The charity has 28 staff members and delivers improvements for little animals on the ground and in policy. Bug Life's priorities include putting bees and flowers back into the countryside, bringing endangered species back from the brink and saving key sites for bugs from destruction, making room, making space safe and developing friendlier relationships with bugs. He's a member of the Broads Authority, the BBC Rural Affairs Committee and has formerly been the chair of Wildlife and Countryside Link Legal Strategy Group and a Country Diary columnist in the Guardian newspaper. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. It's a joy to have you here. Thank you very much, Rob. It's great to be here. Thanks, Rob. Fantastic to talk to you. 
So I'd like you to imagine that just over here next to me is my time machine that I built during lockdown. And in a moment, I'm going to turn it on. And when we turn it on, we're going to travel forward nine years to 2030. And those nine years that we traveled through turned out to be a revolution of the imagination, an extraordinary time where so much that felt impossible in 2021 became reality. And uh, so if you could just get comfortable and close your eyes, and I'm turning my time machine on now, and to imagine that you're traveling through those years, 2023, 2024, 2025, until we reach 2030, and we step out into a world which is not paradise or utopia, but it's the result of us having done everything we possibly could have done. And the world you step into is one which is radically zero carbon, uh, much more connected, more resilient, more diverse, more beautiful. The bugs bounced back. Your work that you did in 2021 paid off. I'd love you to just give us, bring that world to life for us. Walk us through it. What does it smell like? What does it sound like? How is it different to the world you left behind in 2021? Vicky, can you give us a taste of what that future would be like? Yes, Rob, I did actually do this for my book. I imagined what it would be like, and it was wonderful. As you walk out the front door, um, you're seeing far more variety of flowers because we've let the flowers live. We haven't mowed everywhere to death and just had boring lawns, everything's a lot richer. And there, there's the sound of buzzing. Uh, there's more, more sound of birds because the birds need the bugs. They feed on them or they need them to um, pollinate the, the crops that the birds need. So it's incredible colour, sound and noise as you walk down your street, in your park, um, in the verges, in the in the road verges. So that that's one of the things I think would make a huge difference uh, in this 2030 year and it's it's much smellier as well there's a lot more smells from the flowers but I'm also feeling better because I'm not eating so much processed food or ultra processed food and and I'm wearing clothes that I know have been uh, grown sustainably they feel good I feel good in the clothes that I'm wearing and you know they're um, lasting longer and I I think there's a lot more mess a lot more mosaics if i go into the countryside i'm seeing loads more um fields and field edges and uh, obviously it's it's a lot richer in sights and sounds but also a lot more and uh, insects if i'm driving in my incredibly uh, electric high <laughs> highly sustainable car or preferably in a on a bike the insects are falling into my face and uh, or in, on my windscreen and uh, everywhere I look they're rising up around me um, and again there's more flowers there's more um, rich diversity of uh, bird life and mammals and, and everything is is much messier and, and I think one of the things I'm feeling is really pleased about that messiness whereas you know maybe in 2021 many people would have thought, oh, it is messy, I don't like it. But by 2030, we're all liking the mosaic that we're seeing, the 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 loss of the sort of huge fields and uh, huge cereal crops and um, monocrops that we're used to. Um, we're actually seeing a lot more mosaics and, and field edges and hedgerows and trees. And uh, yeah. so I'm also aware that farmers are having, and farm workers are having a better life. There's more of them and there are having a decent living out there in the rural areas as a result of all the changes that uh, I envisage in, in rebugging the planet. And basically all of us are feeling healthier and have greater well-being because we've managed to save the bugs. That's a few thoughts anyway. <laughs> 
Thank you. Beautiful. And lovely when you talk about mess. I remember Bill Mollison, who created Permaculture, used to say, tidiness is maintained disorder, uh-huh. which I always really rather yes. like. Uh, Matt, what's 2030 looking like to you? Well, I live in a little village in Rutland, so I'm going to tell you about my uh, 2030 journey to work in the morning. So <laughs> I walk down to the uh, uh, the road and walk along the road, and on my right-hand side, there's a meadow, and the meadow is full of yellow and blue and violet flowers as far as I can see. I can hear it as well. It's, it's buzzing. The bee, You can hear the bees buzzing. There's grasshoppers chirping and calling loudly and butterflies fluttering in small clouds over this over this field it's early morning and and and, and it's already really active in the sunlight get to the the bus stop and, and and as i arrive there's a there's an older couple there and a, a young student and they're, they're chatting about the moths they've seen last night it's a hot night the night before and uh, they've had the windows open and yeah, it's a bit annoying to get all these moths flying around your bedroom, but but they've noticed the different sorts of moths, and you know that they they can actually identify them. So one of one of them, uh, the young chap's seen a, a beautiful golden Y, and he's explaining the beautiful patterns on the wings of the golden Y. And uh, the old couple had a a lovely uh, large emerald moth with cool mint coloured wings mint green wings and they're, they're they're extolling the virtues of the the moths and saying how pleased they are that the council's now turned off all the lights at night so in the soft darkness of night the animals are coming out again and, and are living and that they're able to encounter them see them crawling around on the walls flying into their bedrooms if they leave the windows open and the lights on we get on the bus it's an electric bus obviously and and head through the countryside and, and as we travel through i can I can track the the, the course of a, of a beeline, uh, a highway for invertebrates, where government funding has created a series of stepping stones that I can see along the way that uh, are, are full of flowers and, uh, again, are, are forming a corridor where the species are able to move with the response to climate change through the countryside. When I get to the bus stop and get off, and my walk to work takes me along the edge of a river, the beautiful water's crystal clear, there's, there's thrumming with uh, dragonflies darting left and right, catching the mayflies as they lift off the, the river surface, the, the, the trout and the carp are doing their stuff in the river, catching the, the invertebrates and, and feeding them as well, it's, and it's, it's, it's full of life, birds flying through the air, catching the midges and the other insects. And I get to work and the offices are set in Parkland. There's already a meeting going on. They're sat around a table outside and enjoying the the local vicinity. And so I go to work and uh, and 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 join in my my job conserving the wildlife in a setting of wildlife, having already had uh, experiences of wildlife and uh, you know seen the public much more engaged and appreciative of, of the nature around them than they used to be in the past. Beautiful. I thought you might say you, you turned up at work and they said, uh, go home, you're, you're sacked. <laughs> it's all done. Your work is done. Look, we, got, we can't move for the bloody things. That'll be the day. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine that some people, thank you so much for doing that. So I imagine some people are listening to this and thinking, why are they talking about bugs? I can see loads of them. It can't be that bad. I mean, how would you summarise where we are in terms of bugs? Is it really an emergency? And how is that manifesting around us, Matt? Yeah, I mean, so first thing is, We've got to think about this in ecological timescales. So, you know, this isn't a, you know, 
is this year better or worse than last year? Um, this is what's happened over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And compare that with what's happened in, in previous times. And we've seen a massive collapse in the area of habitat. And this has created enormous problems for invertebrate populations. They're now fragmented and isolated. And you might think that if you fragment populations of insects, they would learn to disperse better. They would learn to fly further and find the habitats. But what actually happens is that the more you isolate the little animals, the less they disperse because they're leaving these fragments into hostile territory, full of pesticides, full of cars and other things, stopping them from moving around the place. So what actually happens is that they become more stuck and isolated on these little fragments of habitats. And you know, people are very familiar now with the concept of the windscreen phenomenon, where they now notice far fewer insects hitting their windscreens, far fewer moths in their headlights at night. The moth snowstorm is no longer a common feature. You might see it one or two days a year. If you go on holiday in southern France, you might see that. You might see the, the moths again swirling in the headlights of your car. But, you know, your dad used to stop the car and clean the windscreen, and now that doesn't happen. You very rarely have to actually stop your car so that you can clean the windscreen and see out. And studies have shown, you know, in Denmark and in Kent, massive declines in the numbers of insects hitting cars. So there is science behind this. You know, there is science. It's fragmentary. It's patchy. But, you know, 90% decline, uh, more than 90% decline in, in Denmark in the numbers of insects hitting car windscreens. 50% uh, decline in just 20 years in Kent. And roughly speaking, 60% of invertebrate species where we have data are declining and disappearing. Now, in three or four years, that doesn't mean that we notice a lot, perhaps. But in 30 years, that means that we have a massive change, a massive decline. So there is a massive crisis. It's just happening on ecological timescales. So it's not like a nuclear bomb going off. This is a slow explosion, a slow collapse in the life support systems of the planet. Mm, mm. And and Vicky, I mentioned at the beginning that quote by René Dubo, which I love about, about the moon. How do you feel the decline in insect populations is impacting our imaginations? Is there a connection between our ability to see things as if they could be otherwise and the diversity of the natural natural world around us? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I did. I do think it's fantastic what invertebrates, and it's not just insects, have delivered for us, for our, for our imagination, for our culture. And the risk is with ever lower numbers, for instance, that children see when they go into the park or into their garden or into the playground, because um, it's been sprayed with herbicides to remove the uh, flower plants that the insects need, that they are not exposed to that richness and the, those joys, you know, the, you know, the moths and the bees, et cetera, et cetera. They don't understand then why it's important to preserve them, conserve them and, and support them. And I think that's a real danger because we could be creating a whole generation that is both fearing insects, because as I talk about in the book, people can transfer their fear of insects or their dislike of insects to their children. And that's an attitude I really want to change through the, through the book, but also children aren't exposed to them. So um, we've, we've got a generation that won't know that what they've lost and won't understand those wonderful like quotes in Shakespeare about about the about the bugs and food for worms and so much poetry and art 
that is based around not only the um, the bugs and worms and the insects and butterflies, but also is a basis for a lot of other things like birds and in fact ourselves, because it would be very hard for us to exist without the bugs. So it's it's really important that peace people um, help their children to understand what can be done. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount that people do, it, you know, they can start small. That's the joy of rewilding with rebugging, that you can just start it in your own garden or in your own um, window ledge. And that, that if we don't start to do that, I think we could end up with a situation where a huge amount of the population is having a very strange understanding of the natural world, as Matt pointed out, that there is a crisis that we need to address and people need to be part of that change. Mm. And Matt, what's your thoughts in terms of the, uh, the link between the diversity of the insect world around us and our imaginations? As Ricky said, I mean, you know, the inspiration of art is back to Shakespeare. Um, you know, it, it's it's amazing uh, how much insects have inspired art. I was reading the other day that there's a Vincent van Gogh painting uh, where there's a, a, a grasshopper that is actually painted into the painting, a real grasshopper oh wow they, were, <laughs> Amazing. they don't know how or why but maybe this grasshopper leapt into the frame <laughs> of his actual painting and he just painted it into the paintwork um but you know you know whether you're looking at you know scottish history and the inspirations that the spider uh, provided to uh to rebel against the the english you know whether you're looking at uh, you know, art or, or music. You know, the Beatles. You know, <laughs> how many, how many, how many times do invertebrates occur within our culture? Even in sports, sting like a bee, dance like a butterfly. Is that fantastic? And so, how do you think we can, in a, in a culture where people still talk about creepy crawlies and this sort of idea that somehow insects are all out to get you, somehow as if that's their prime reason in life? How do we get people to fall in love with them? Because we're only going to save things that we love, right? How, how, do, we, how do we build the, the, the wherewithal for a culture to fall in love with insects, Vicky? Well, I think we need to have really good natural history education in schools from, from the beginning. And, I, you know, every time I've been on a school trip to a natural area, the kids are naturally you know, from a very young age, curious about the bugs. And it's fantastic. It's one of my favourite things. I'm sure it is Matt as well. If you see children's joy when they see um, a bug of any sort, you know, my son came in with a handful of worms and was totally entranced because these are so unlike us, unlike the normal things they see every day. So that curiosity um, is really important to nurture from an early age and not to kill um, through uh, older older children um, starting to be exposed to sort of all those fears, you know, that uh, they'll sting you, they're dirty, they'll give you diseases, you know, all those kind of things. We need to start to, to readdress how we talk about insects and then understand more about what their role is, not only in culture and imagination, but in our absolute, you know, every everyday lives, you know, we wouldn't have the food that we have, um, the fruit and veg, we, you know, we wouldn't have the clean water, we wouldn't have the birds, all those things that... Um, people don't necessarily associate with the bugs. Uh, that Getting more understanding of that from a very early age, but also the BBC Springwatch series has been fantastic in creating a, a, a level of understanding, but we need more of that. And I think that could be done through schools and universities, also through the workplace. How much could a workplace start to sort of engender within its workforce 
and under a better understanding of the role of bugs, both in what that workforce is doing, you know, what wouldn't be able to be done. You couldn't build furniture, wooden furniture. You couldn't, you couldn't do loads of things that we currently do if we didn't have the bugs. And then start to implement bug-friendly work practices, like you know, making sure you've got flower-rich um, verges outside your office and inside your office and on the roof of your office. And away days where you do restoration projects or beelines with Matt. You know, there's a whole range of things that I talk about in the book about what people can do in their everyday lives, not just at home, not just in the garden, although that's critical, but also what you do politically and what you buy. But that that's, I think it is so rich and so gorgeous. And, and what has happened as a result of a lot of the rewilding projects that people are getting inspired. And I want them to be inspired by the bogs, bugs uh, locally, as well as um, in the rural areas. Great, thank you, Matt. What's how can we how can we fall back in love with insects? David Attenborough was once being interviewed, and he was asked by the interviewer, uh, "When did you first get interested in insects?" And uh, he responded by saying, "When did you stop being interested in?" Insects? <laughs> great. Um, and I think you know we have a, we have a great starting point because young children are fascinated by invertebrates. Mm. You know, my daughter used to come in with worms in her hands. You know, they love them. And the trick we've got to pull off is to ha- how do you foster that? How do you keep that interest, that wonder, and that sense of you know cohabitation of the planet with these other organisms? The respect. Mm. How do you keep that going? And I think part of the role of bug life has been to try to counter some of the negativity. And there is a lot of negativity. And mm. we've seen fantastic changes in how people think about pollinators and bees in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, mm. uh, this was an issue that was nowhere on the agenda. And, you know, bees were a bit take them or leave them. And now bees or politicians hardly get mail about anything more than they get mail about looking after the bees and you know there is a real political imperative now to try to make sure that pollinators and bees are looked after there is a, a widespread universality now almost in terms of bees being a good thing and looking after bees being a good thing and that is a change that is a change that is very different to when we started doing our work at bug life 20 years ago uh, what we've got to do now is try to get that to apply to other organisms less sort of instantly fluffy and uh, instantly attractive organisms because bug life's here for all of the bugs even the ugly bugs so there's still work to be done and you know one of the things i'm most proud of is how we've managed to provide a counter narrative to a lot of the corporate negativity so there are a lot of vested interests in us having negative attitudes towards insects. Um, There is a vast industry out there uh, which is targeted at destroying insects uh, and and who uh, actually try to manipulate the public into thinking that insects are bad and that pests, pests well they're all pests and the pests need to be eradicated. Um, Every year journalists get bombarded with press releases from pest control companies saying that it's going to be another appalling year for wasps, spiders, crane flies, you name it. Something that you're going to have to go and buy some products to go out and destroy these animals. And and while you might think that's a kind of narrow activity, actually that sort of sentiment, that sort of stuff is part of the reasons why uh, adults don't see uh, insects as being positive, good things. And 
you know, it's only, you know, what, 1% of invertebrate species that ever cause an issue for human beings. But because of the dominance of, of the finances in terms of uh, trying to make out that insects are bad, we've ended up in a situation where the narrative has been changed negatively. But I'd like to finish on a positive note because these things are incredibly flexible and dynamic. If you went back 100 years and talked to the public about birds, they wouldn't be anywhere near as positive and appreciative of birds 100 years ago as they are now. They used to uh, have regular culls of rooks where everyone was encouraged to go out and kill as many rooks as you possibly could. There was a national rook day where you had to kill as many rooks and destroy their eggs and nests as you possibly could. You know, th that just wouldn't be tenable and acceptable today because people would see it just cruel and horrible and aren't rooks intelligent animals? Well, our attitude and our appreciation of birds has changed massively. And if you look across geography and history, you find that other people and other peoples have very much more positive attitudes to different groups of invertebrates. Beetles used to be worshipped in ancient Egypt, in, uh, in Czech, Czech Republic. Uh, the studying of beetles is as prevalent there as the studying of birds is here. You know, beetles are loved in parts of Eastern Europe. They are very popular um, groups of organisms, far more than they are in the UK. So these things are plastic and they can be uh, changed and putting out positive messages about invertebrates and their importance to life on earth, their beauty and their wonder, all will slowly change society into being more appreciative and more understanding of the need we have to look after these other organisms that we share the planet with. Mm, thank you. And Vicky, I love in your book how you talk about how everything that we do has an impact on the bug life around us, on our shopping decisions, our business decisions, our holidaying decisions. But isn't there a risk in the same way that oil companies try to deflect the attention away from their actions by asking us all to consider our personal carbon footprints, that focusing on action, personal actions, means that we lose the focus on the need for systems change? Because surely the demise of insects is an indicator that our entire system is designed wrong and in service of the wrong things. Totally agree. It, it does require system change. Part of that system is in the individual household. And um, so everybody does have a part to play. So understanding that plot, understanding the connections with the, um, the bug world and what bugs give to us in terms of our clothes, our food, our buildings, our furniture, our air, our water, et cetera, et cetera. Understanding that is, is important in terms of driving individual action. But I also do spell out quite clearly across the book in all the tips is how critical it is to work with others and to change the politics. So there is a chapter that is all about poverty and inequality and lobbying and power, you know, of the companies that Matt was referring to, the big chemical companies, changing politicians' attitudes and changing the, the role of politicians in terms of protecting the systems um, that nurture us, the natural systems, which absolutely include all the bugs, um, and away from automatic assumption that we need uh, big tech solutions for a lot of the problems we're facing. And so it's everybody being inspired to take action locally in their homes and what they buy, but critically together as a, as a movement for the bugs. And that, that's kind of what I do say in the book. You can get involved in so many campaigns, brilliant campaigns by Bug Life and uh, lots of other organisations, as Matt was talking about, and they all have made a difference. The bees campaigns have been, as, as Matt said, very, very successful, although we're not there yet um, in terms of, but we have had some really big successes in terms of banning um, significantly harmful 
neonicotinoid pesticides. And we need to maintain those bands and, and really support farmers in uh, shifting towards integrated pest management using natural systems for pest management rather than going, you know, going out towards the chemical control first, having that as a very last resort. And that will take a huge amount of government support and advice and training and um, support for the risks that are involved for farmers, but also educating consumers in, in why they might need to eat things differently, have different diets, because that will support farmers in the changes that they need to make to have a more diverse farming cropping system. All these things are very connected. So I, I totally agree with you. We need big system change and absolutely not saying we can all do this individually by individual action. It's individually as a movement acting politically and as a, a citizen, as well as as a consumer and as well as what you do in your home every day and, and how you mow your lawn mm. or not mow your lawn. Thank you, Matt. So how, how does Bug Life manage that? You know, does does Bug Life talk about systems change and 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 aiming at that sort of level too? Yeah, we've got an advocacy and social change uh, officer working for us. That's for sure. Um, I mean, I think I think Vicky almost understates her her books uh, adeptness at making the argument uh, that she just set out. Actually, the, the, the chapters in there and the, and the particular where she's explaining why it's not just all the individual actions that she outlines so adeptly in the book, but also, also the need to come together, mm. the need to converge and to make your voices count as one, and, and the importance of the NGOs, the non-governmental organisations like Budget Bug Life, as becoming that focus for people's voices so that that can get put into the system and put into the politics. Um, another aspect of that that I would highlight that's quite a tricky one is is the media itself um, and how we hold politicians to account because i think it happens across a lot of environmental issues you know is it about our personal guilt and what we do or is it actually about holding to account the decision makers and i think our media is very poor at holding decision makers to account on environmental issues there's a bit of inherent stuff in here inherently it's quite tricky because often the decisions that they take today won't be implemented for another couple of years and you won't see then the impacts on nature and the environment for a few years after that. So uh, the tricky thing is, you know, in a way you're having to hold to account people who've done stuff five years ago and are no longer in post, mm. you know, so, so that's a bit of a problem. But at the same time, we know that there's all these actions, so many actions that really many of them easy to achieve some of them need money and investment uh, some of them need changes in structures and changes in processes but even the easy stuff it's just so much hard work to try to get the political change to try to get the changes in place that will make things happen and part of the problem is that it's very difficult to break environmental issues out of a sort of science and technology box within the media so it's seen as technical it's seen as something that's sort of scientific mm. um, it's not seen as political even when the environment's coming out right up at the top of people's political concerns you don't see politicians being hammered on the environment in the same way they're hammered on the nhs in the same way they're hammered on jobs in the same way that they're hammered on the economy and and somehow the media have to step up i think and mm. and really look hard at you know maybe it's because they've all got arts degrees maybe because they're not 
adequately effaced after they had the confidence to walk into that room and, you know, lay it on to the minister about pollinators or lay it on to the minister about habitat connectivity or lay it on to the minister about uh, pollution in rivers, you know. Mm. But somehow we've got to get to the point where the, the media is providing a better connection between the public's high level of concern about environmental issues, the politicians' high level of responsibility for addressing those. And the connection isn't happening properly at the moment. I'd love to hear, I, I mentioned at the beginning my incredible meeting with a hummingbird hawk moth, and I wonder if you both might have an experience from your life to share where an encounter with an insect really affected you, really sparked your imagination. Matt, is there anything that comes to mind? I struggle with these sorts of questions, um, in part because there are so many, you know, and, and as as the chief executive of, of Bug Life, I'm not really supposed to show preference. <laughs> you know, Tricky, yeah. They're all, they're all wonderful, you know, every single one of the 40,000 species in the UK and million species across the world, they're, they're all fantastic organisms. Um. Give me a moment, Robin, I'll have another little think okay. about it. We, we won't tell anyone. You're safe with us. Uh, Vicky, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I actually had a hummingbird hawk moth in my garden recently, which, you know, I was just squealing with joy because I haven't had one before. But my probably standout one was when I was about 19 or 18. I was doing a summer job. Luckily, I was able to do a summer job counting honeybees coming out of their hives as part of an experiment on pheromones, the chemical signals that bees use to communicate um, at an uh, experimental station where I lived in Hartmanton, it's called Rothamsted. And I was sitting there for weeks on end with a counter, watching them come and go with or without their little pollen sacs and having collected uh, nectar and pollen to bring back to the hive and do their dance, which they do. And some weren't doing, you know, didn't have the pollen sacs. They were diff doing different kinds of activities. They might have been guard bees, etc. But one day, one bee clearly thought suddenly, and it was after several weeks of doing this, that I was a, a, um, a, a baddie, a threat, a huge lump of threat sitting next to the hive. And buzzed around me and I could immediately hear the difference in the buzz from the normal buzz that I heard from these lovely honeybees and it was a different buzz and I absolutely knew that it thought I was a threat and eventually it landed on my face and I tried really hard not to swipe it off but when it got towards my nostril I had to swipe and, and it stung me and I've still got the scar but my recollection was of a huge communication between me and the bee. I knew exactly what was going on because the buzz changed and it, it clearly thought, thought of me as a threat. So that was, I had lots of interest in bugs before then, but that was a point at which I had a really intimate interaction. And I, I don't resent it, obviously. Uh, I carried on doing the research and uh, it was a wonderful summer job, I have to say. But that was a, a real communication between me and a honeybee, which I have never forgotten. Thank you. Matt, anything come to you? It's, it's interesting, Vicky, because, um, you know, uh, Roger Key, who you may remember, used to be an entomologist at Natural England and, uh, and a national sort of beetle expert. And he always put down his getting into wildlife uh, and beetles in particular down to an incident when he was a, a young child, probably four or something like that, and uh, was nipped huh? on the end of his finger by uh, a, a devil's coach horse beetle. Ah. Wow. And it caused quite a bit of harm and damage, you know, it got infected and, and swollen and, you know, uh, quite a nasty bite. But it, it was actually that initial negative experience and drove him on to a lifetime of, of 
falling in love with with Beatles. Um, I have a I have a particular penchant. I think I can get away with this for metallic animals, right? <laughs> metallic. I mean, metallic animals. It must be something a bit of a magpie gene in me somewhere. But any metallic animal. I mean, those. You know, we don't get metallic vertebrates really. So re- metallic. I suppose maybe some hummingbirds and things like that. But <laughs> you know, metallic insects. Whoa. You know, tansy beetles. You know, like. Christmas baubles on tansy plants up, up, you know, in the little tiny places where it occurs around York, you know, little tiny populations where it's still things a great big, shiny green beetle. But perhaps, and this is quite an early memory, so I'm probably uh, about 11 uh, or so, and we were camping with the scouts uh, down near Frensham in Surrey, and we went swimming in a, a little river. And as we were swimming in the river, there were... Uh, banded demoiselles flying around, you know, and banded demoiselles, if you don't know, they're a little damselfly, they're about two and a half, three inches long. Um, their bodies are like tubes, metallic blue tubes, and then their wings have these patches, and at some angles the patches are black, and other an- angles they're blue, and they they flash in the light, and just amazing. And, you know, uh, uh, another, another set of experiences you know, not in the UK, but when I went to Peru and had some amazing experiences, one bit walking up this little tiny stream, and there were, again, these little tiny metallic damselflies with with wings that they're not dark like our native ones here, but, you know, with these little patches, little squares of metallic flashing blue, just flashing through the undergrowth, moving between the sunlight as it comes through the leaves and the dark patches, glistening and glittering, you know, like little fairies through through the things. And then coming into an opening there and, you know, standing and looking at just a couple of little bushes and sort of going, looking at the leaf hoppers. And, you know, this is in cloud forest in, in Peru. And, you know, looking, there's a yellow and black one. And there's a, a red stripy one. Here, here's a black and white one. Here's a massive one with a, an odd ornament on its head. And looking around, and I must have been able to see at least 30 different sorts of leaf hoppers just sitting around on these two bushes, every single one different and diverse. And, you know, the level of diversity uh, in invertebrates is, is absolutely breathtaking in some parts of the world. Wow, thank you. We always say that part of the aim with this podcast is to cultivate longing in the people listening for a uh, for the kind of post-carbon future that we could still create. And you've, you've both just done that so beautifully. I can sort of imagine that and how that could just become so much more a part of our everyday life. So thank you both so, so much for joining me here today. It's been a, a real delight and an honour to have you uh, on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you. So my thanks to everybody who listens, to everyone who subscribes, and to the creative genius that is Ben Adicott for making our conversation sound like melted honey to your ears. We'll see you next time. 